everybody. Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo Archaeology. Welcome to episode 96 of the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, and I am your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella. On tonight's episode, we will be discussing the Antikythera mechanism found in Greece in 1901. So, what is this mechanism, and why did I choose to talk about it? Well, I chose to talk about it because I had made a pledge to myself for this show that I would split the topics about in half, meaning half the time I would talk about old school classics that everyone's always curious about, like Atlantis or Riddle of the Sphinx or this kind of thing. And the other half, I would talk about current events in archaeology. And so in order to figure out what current events were, I just took out my phone and I Googled common terms like archaeology, archaeology finds, archaeology in the news. And I just wanted to see what would come up. And one of the first things to come up was the Antikythera mechanism. And I thought, okay, this is great. Because when you search for Antikythera mechanism, the descriptive terms associated with it are things like mystery device, world's first computer, alien technology, right? This kind of thing. And, and I'm like, okay, here's a great example of an archaeological artifact that if you're truly curious and want to know more about it, it's actually kind of hard sometimes to just find reliable facts. And so I thought it would be fun to kind of take a tour through the story of the Antikythera mechanism to talk about what it really is, reconstructions of it, and you know, what we truly can answer about it 
using today's modern archaeology and at the same moment refute some more of the foolish, silly claims that it is somehow alien technology. So I actually have an angle on talking about this thing as well, because I was actually asked about it a while back as part of a television show. So every once in a very long while, I get interviewed for like a documentary on the Science Channel or the Discovery Channel or this kind of thing. And in those interviews, I get asked about all kinds of things. And one of them was the Antikythera mechanism. And I didn't know that much about it. I knew a little, and I tried to fill in as much as I reasonably could. And honestly, as I talked about it, and I looked over some notes about it, I was a little worried. I was like, ooh, man, you know, is this, is this fake? What, what is this? You know, is this some sort of fraud? Am I perpetuating it by talking about it, you know, on, on some sort of television show? So I didn't want to screw up. I wanted to do my due diligence and tell people the right thing. So thankfully, I did. Phew! Bullet dodged. But I thought I would share with everyone what I found as I did a deep dive into what this mechanism actually is. So first, the background to the story. The Antikythera mechanism was found in 1901, right off the coast of a very small island in Greece. And it was found by sponge divers. Now, it was at 150 feet deep. So this is not shallow. For those of you who are divers will will know this. 150 feet is counts, if that makes sense. For modern recreational diving, it's basically too deep. So if you have normal scuba equipment, really the line that you don't want to go too far under is about 125, 130 feet. Now, 150 feet is doable, but it's dangerous and you cannot spend very much time underneath at that depth whatsoever, or it can be really, really bad for your health. And at this time, you got to realize this is 1901. They didn't have scuba equipment, right? So what they're diving down, these sponge divers are going down to this, this depth using an old school SpongeBob SquarePants style dive gear. You guys know what I mean, like the brass helmet thing, right? Where they pump in the oxygen from the surface down to the diver. And so at 150 feet, one of the sponge divers is down there and he's like, oh, my God. And he needs to be pulled up right away. They pull him up and he's like, there's dead bodies down there. I think there's a lot of dead people down there. You guys, you got to go check it out. Now, they only had one one suit. So the diver took his suit off and they gave it to like the project leader, right? The the leader of the sponge divers. Maybe it was the captain of the ship. And he dives down and he takes a closer look. And these are not dead bodies. They're statues, right? These are what they've stumbled across are a huge pile of Greek statues that are from a shipwreck. So all this stuff is part of a shipwreck. And it was later figured out that this shipwreck had had, uh, met its fate somewhere around 100 BC, give or take. You'll hear 200 BC, you'll hear 70 BC, but I think 100 BC is a really good guess as to when this ship sunk. 100 BC, maybe 70 BC, right in there. And so what happens, you have all these bronze statues that had been pulled up. And honestly, the wreck of the um, the wreck off Antikythera Island 
is just as famous for the statues that were found. You know, this is this is 1901. So these statues are 2000 years old. So the big deal was then to go there and recover these statues. As they're recovering these statues, they find this funky bronze gear thing in the shipwreck, right? As they're pulling up these statues, they're like, oh, what's this? And they pull this up as well. It's not very big. It's smaller than the size of a shoebox. It's not, you know, it's not large. It's not super imposing, but it's really, really intricate. And it just looks like all these gears kind of stacked one on top of the other. You know, is this is this a piece of a grandfather clock? Is this a piece of a car transmission? It almost looks like that. But but no, right? It's it's something something else entirely. Now made out of bronze, so it didn't it didn't rust into oblivion, but it's still kind of concreted together in a lump. So you basically have this concreted together bronze lump with gears sticking out. You can tell it's something intricate and you can tell there's these circular gears with really precise teeth in them, but that's about it. So it comes up with the rest of the rest of the hall. Now, they start to look at this as the as the years go by. Right. Found in 1901. There, there are times here in in the past when they didn't really care about it that much. So you're, you're going to see as you see with a lot of very specific, unique artifacts that they're analyzed. Sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't, meaning sometimes they can spend years or decades in the in the back of a lab somewhere with nobody caring. I've seen this in my own career, you know, where you kind of look into the deeper, dark corners of lab space somewhere and you see something, oh, collected in 1901. Oh, what is this? And you open some old moldy bag and you're like, oh, my God. This is important, you know, so the Antikythera mechanism does have that story a bit to it, where it has times of kind of times of feast and times of famine in terms of of being studied. But what's great is over the years, there was study undertaken on it at several different times. And of course, since 1901, the technology has gotten much better in terms of looking at something like this. So as we get x-rays that are that are more precise the the antikythera mechanism gets x-rayed as you get ct scan technology the device gets ct scanned and with each time you get more and more appreciative of the very fine construction of the antikythera mechanism like wow these gears are really precise and they're really lined up you know really well and this is something that at face value doesn't really even look like it belongs to the Greece of 100 BC. At first glance, it does look super complex, you know, and it does look very much out of place when we think of Greek culture from that time, right? But as as we'll see, it actually it's really not and and that's what in some ways makes it so great. No, it does represent Greek culture of the time. We just maybe need to be a little more appreciative of how complex certain aspects of Greek culture were, how far they'd gone technologically with with some of this stuff. So with this 
new study with better technology as the century has gone by. We have to remember it's been 120 years since this has been found. We really have a very good idea of what the Antikythera mechanism was and how it worked. What we can say now is the actual piece that was found by the sponge divers is only about a third of the entire device. So you have, oh, as as is so typical in archaeology, you have two thirds missing, one third there. Well, fill in the rest. And what I find is really, really impressive in terms of what modern science has done with this is they've very, very recently filled in the rest of the blanks to where they have a really, really good idea of what this mechanism was specifically and how it worked. The reason why the Antikythera mechanism was coming up on my phone was because this new study has just recently been concluded in terms of the reconstruction of the the device and how it worked. And of course, when you have good archaeological research that's recently been concluded, then you're going to get all the naysayers saying like, no, 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 it must be aliens. But let's not miss the trick. When all this stuff gets covered over with, oh my God, it's more complex than any Swiss watch ever made. It must be alien technology. And we want to just enjoy the fact of how good modern archaeology is at reconstructing things like this. Now, what specifically is the Antikythera mechanism and what does it do? Well, I'll tell you right after this break. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, episode 96. And we were discussing the Antikythera mechanism. In the last segment, we talked about the history behind it, how it was found by sponge divers in 1901. And now we want to talk more specifically about what what is this thing? You know, okay, I've heard so much about the Antikythera mechanism and I've heard that it's the world's first computer. Okay, what what precisely is this? It's actually pretty cool. If we're honest, when you when you look at this thing, it's pretty neat. So the Antikythera mechanism is about the size of a shoebox, not a big shoebox like you have boots in and not a tiny shoebox like for kids shoes, a medium sized shoebox. So it's not that big. Inside, it's full of bronze gears that run with each other that time out all kinds of things that you can see on the large flat face of the of the shoebox. If you're thinking of it as a shoebox, you kind of look at on the large flat side to see what's going on. So what's going on? What's going on is a lot of things that are moving in circles. So if you if you look at the, at the front, you will see sort of concentric circles from the center and then you have all these all these circles going out. What what are all these circles? Well, they're the positions of the planets. So what this device shows. And now you have to crank it. 
Okay, there's no springs in it. It doesn't it doesn't have batteries or anything like that. You you have a crank on the side of this box and you crank it and all this stuff goes around. So in the center, you have the earth. Remember, this is 100 BC. They don't know that the sun is the center of the solar system. They think the earth is. So the earth is in the center. And then and then as you go out, you have a moon that will go around and also show the phases of the moon. You have a sun that will go around and time out the days. Then you have Mercury. You have Venus. You have Mars. You have Jupiter. And you have Saturn. Pretty good, right? And those are all the planets that would have been known to Greece at that time, right? Because they would not have been able to necessarily catch Uranus or Neptune, and there's you know no way at all they would see Pluto. Although, yes, I know, Pluto isn't defined as a planet anymore. But what you're seeing is a metered out description of the night sky. And it's all kind of timed with itself with these gears. Pretty complex. And you know what makes it worse? is because they thought of the Earth as the center of the universe, really, you know, the center of the solar system, that to time out how we're going to see the planets, it's going to be extra hard because you can't just have the planets go around in a, in a smooth circle. You're going to have to time in what's called retrograde, which means from our vision, because we're going around the sun, the Greeks didn't know this, Every so often, based on where we are going around the sun versus, let's say, where where Jupiter is, Jupiter will appear to go the wrong way for a little while. You know, so it'll be it'll be cruising across the night sky. Then it'll go a little backwards for a while and then it'll go forwards again. And that's just because where we are is changing. Right. We're not in a in a set location. We're going around the sun, too. So that happens with with the with the planets and that makes it so much harder and and to me one of the most interesting aspects of the antikythera mechanism is that oh man they planned in retrograde to that because oh that's got to be a pain so but they did it very very cool and uh, if you're impressed so far well that's not all you also have the zodiac laid out sort of around the entire thing so you you can see what planets are within which zodiac symbol depending on what day it is you know you're also going to have the days and the months on there as well all very very finely marked into the bronze face cover right pretty pretty amazing you you are also adding the Olympic Games, too, into all this. So the Olympic Games came every four years, just like they do now. And so you're also timing the Olympic Games to all this, too. So you have all this cool stuff. Oh, you can also do eclipses. You got eclipses in this, too. So you got lots of stuff happening in this little box that's about the size of a shoebox. It sounds pretty amazing, which it is. My... Favorite part of all of this, I think, is actually the math involved. They were always looking to be economical in terms of making this. And I don't mean economical in terms of money. 
I mean, economical in terms of how many gears you use. You're dealing with retrograde and all that stuff. You know, you, you've got a lot of different motions all going on at once. So what they were able to do is basically through very careful measuring of the night sky, you know, over days and weeks and years, they were able to kind of come up with the lowest common denominator of timing of these different things. So what that means is you could use the same gear for a couple different things. So they were able to narrow down the total number of gears to basically the minimum amount that they would need as you crank this box and all this stuff happens at the same time. So the experience of cranking this box, you'd have the flat side towards you, you'd crank it, and then all these little things would go around the Earth in the center. And then you could crank it to a specific day and you could go, oh, Jupiter's in Pisces on the 21st of December or whatever, right? You could you could kind of, you, you could crank it forward a month or two and be like, oh, okay, this is what, this is what the night sky is going to show us in two months, crank it forward to the next Olympic Games and be like, oh, two months from now, hey, uh, Venus is going to be in Aries or whatever, you know, and, and you can kind of you can kind of go from there. Oh, and the moon's in, in the waxing gibbous, however you want to do. Really, really interesting. Really, really intricate. Now. Is this the world's first computer? It really depends on how you define computer. For me, I tend to say no. And really, it depends, though, on what you think of as a computer. I'm not trying to be harsh on the ancient Greeks. Okay, this device is really, really impressive. But I think defining it as a computer, especially in terms of how we think of computers in the modern day, it might be a bit of a step too far. It's much better, I think, to define this kind of one of two ways. The first way is as an orrery. See, I can barely even say it. That's O-R-R-E-R-Y, an orrery. And what that is, is simply a mechanical solar system model. That's what this thing is, first and foremost. Now, it is intricate. It is impressive. But uh, I, I guess you could argue that, yes, you can. It'll show you in two months, you know, where the moon is in in terms of gemini but is that a computer ah, you know okay whatever but we just we we want to be honest with what this thing truly does and what it does not do so in terms of figuring all this out i can sit here and tell you oh well, all these things spin around isn't that great you have to have the actual archaeological work to show how this really happens so this gets into the world of experimental archaeology and this is one of the best parts of the story, that as the decades have gone on, archaeologists have been able to make better and better models of how this thing ultimately worked. And the most recent team, which I believe was through the University College London, they just did it within the last year or so. They made the most recent model, and I think they basically got it. Like, I think we're basically there. And, and what do I mean by got it? it, it this thing was so complex. That that over the years, people were trying to figure out, well, how precisely did the gears all go together? You have the archaeological artifact of the Antikythera mechanism, but you only have a third of the whole thing. You're, you're trying to take that third and add to it the rest that would all make sense. And so there's the devils in the details. 
in terms of what goes where and how many gears precisely and you know what gear controls what and 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 this sort of thing but i i I really do think they nailed it and it's special props to the world of experimental archaeology i love the world of experimental archaeology because it's such a great proof on what happened in the past like you can say oh the antikythera mechanism isn't it impressive well, yeah, okay, but how did it work? Well, with gears or something. Yeah, but if you actually make one using the same materials that they used 2,000 years ago, then you can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. You go, oh, you're wondering how this device worked? Well, watch as I crank my to-scale model and show you exactly how it worked. So experimental archaeology is a powerful tool for us in in archaeology and again i think they've got the last bits and bobs how did they do it well the short answer is through hard work and through the longer answer is how i talked about before how technology has gotten better as better and better ct scans were done on the remains they could see that there were carvings in the bronze itself basically directions on how to use it now they weren't all there but this was great. You actually have sentences very finely carved into the into the bronze that you can read. You can get bits and bobs of like, oh, uh, this shows this. Do this to make sure this goes around at this time. Now, you got to remember, you got to think of it as it's directions that are all torn up and you only have a couple pieces of it. But it really gives you an idea of how it was used, what it was used for, what it was meant for, this kind of thing. So we get better and better, better clues. And I think they've they've really done it. They've also even made a Lego model of this. Now, the Lego model is not exact to the box, but it does the same things, which is really, really great. I I love it when companies like that do things that are related to archaeology because it really gets it out to the general public to see like, hey, look, man, isn't this cool? So as I talk about how great the Antikythera mechanism is, I'm sure a couple other questions come out like, okay, if this is real, if it's not a hoax, why don't we have any more? You know, why why aren't any more of these found? Why is there only one? Why make this in the first place? You know, I mean, it's cool and all, but do you really need it? Can't you just look at a chart? Was this a navigational aid of some kind because it was found on a in a shipwreck? So why, why were no others found? This is because it was part of a shipwreck. And the shipwreck just serves as a time capsule for 2,000 years, right? So this thing has been in cold storage for 2,000 years. And it's made out of bronze. All the other ones would have been long ago melted down. Because bronze is very worthwhile. And you got to think... Yes, the Antikythera mechanism is really, really cool. But is an Antikythera mechanism that's 40 years old still cool? You know, have you been saving your iPhone 4S? No, you haven't. Because you have an iPhone 12. You know, and my point is, Recycling was a thing in the ancient world, too. So the chances of finding another one of these is very, very low. We do know there were others, though, because they wrote about it. 
So the ancient Greeks did write about having these devices. And there are several different accounts of using these devices, of talking about them, of talking about how great they were. So we know for sure this was a thing in ancient Greece. So this is not a hoax of any kind. This is a real device from the time. So I think that aspect of questioning about if the Antikythera mechanism is somehow true or not is solved. There you go. You have the written records. You have the device itself. You have real reasoning as to why you wouldn't find others. I'm happy with it. Now, in terms of why make this in the first place, why not just use charts? And is this a navigational aid or not? Let's talk about that when we come back. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome back to episode 96 of the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. And we've been talking about the Antikythera mechanism. Now, we've talked about its history. We've talked about what it actually is and what it maps, largely the night sky. And so ultimately, what's my take on this? Here's what I would say. What really informs me here is I'm a big horology nerd. Horology is the study of time. So I like collecting watches. I like the idea of a wristwatch. I like the different kinds of watches out there. I like just looking at how ancient cultures and modern cultures, how we define time. Like, what is time? How do we split up this thing that just keeps going by? Right? It gets very philosophical very fast. And when we think of time in that matter and that defining of time by using it in in our case using a watch that's how i'm informed about what the antikythera mechanism really is i would look at it as a mechanical watch with lots of complications and what's a complication okay that doesn't just mean it's complex a complication is a specific term in the watch world it's like a watch add-on and, and think of a mechanical watch, right? On, on your mechanical watch, you're going to have hours, minutes, and seconds. Sure, you're going to have that on your watch. But let's say you have a watch with a day date where you have the little square on the side that says 13. You know, that's a date complication. That's how we would say it in the watch world. So and you can have more as you think of mechanical watches. Now, me, the the watch I'm wearing right now the watch I'm wearing right now is actually a digital watch, but every complication I have on it, you could have on a mechanical watch as well. Okay, so so this is something that you can do either by modern technology of chips and that kind of stuff, or you can do it by old technology of a bunch of gears that are all timed out to do the right thing at the right time, right? So my watch has, of course, it has hours, minutes, and seconds. But it also has months, it has days, it has the moon phase, 
and it has the tide. So on my watch, it has these specific moon phase and tide complications. Why do I have that? It's because I enjoy surfing. And so when I go surfing, I like the ease of looking at my watch and going, oh, okay, it's low tide. Ooh, and it's also a full moon. So that means the low tide is going to be extra low. And it's just an easy convenience device, right, that, that helps me in my daily life. I don't need it. I could look at the charts, but looking at the charts is a pain. So I just like looking at my wrist for like one second and I go, oh, okay. I think that same ideology can really be used in explaining the Antikythera mechanism. So the Antikythera mechanism is this box that has a lot of gears in it that has the equivalent of a lot of watch complications, right? Instead of tide and seconds and this kind of stuff, it has other things. It has planet locations and timing for Olympic games, right? It has these different complications all put in there and all timed out using the gears. So I also think that idea of, well, did the Greeks really need the Antikythera mechanism? The answer is, of course, no. Could they have looked at the charts, just looked at the charts? Of course they could. But where's the fun in that? Where's the convenience in that? Right? I, again, today, I could look at charts that are more exact than anything the Greeks ever had, but I would just prefer to just look down at my watch. And my watch is not precise. It just kind of shows, like, like uh, as I'm looking at it right now, the entire tide from high tide to low tide and back up again is only divided into six. So when I'm looking at something, I'm just looking at generalities. You know, I'm like, eh, yeah, close enough. Good enough for me. And I think the Antikythera mechanism does the same thing. It's, it's convenient. Yes, you could tell a Greek from 100 BC, well, why don't you look at the charts? And they'd be like, dude, because I can just crank this device a few turns and I can see that, yes, the next Olympic Games are going to be when Leo is high in the sky. You know, that's, that's, that's all they got to do. So it's, it's convenient. And also, when you have something set up like that, where it's all in front of you at once, if you're looking at the Antikythera mechanism and everything's there, the planets, the zodiac chart, the, the location of the sun and the moon, you can more quickly come to conclusions about what's going to happen in the next week or two, right? Easy conclusions. You don't have to look at three different charts. Oh, wait, let's look at the chart of Jupiter and then let's look at the chart of Saturn. Let's look at the chart of Venus all at once and try and figure it out. No, 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 no. You have this thing where you can just see it at a glance and you know what's going on. So is it a convenience piece? Sure it is. Is it something that's just kind of cool? Sure it is. Is it just a bit of a showpiece to show what I have and what you don't, just like any sort of very expensive watch? Of course it is. And that's fine, right? Shocking to no one, the ancient Greeks were people just like us, right? Just like everyone. All people on Earth, man, we're all the same. You know, so the idea of them just kind of wanting this cool thing and if they had enough money to buy one, sure. Now, in terms of it being a navigational aid for a ship, hence it was found in a shipwreck, I tend to think it's not. Because in that case, you want stuff more specific. And in that case, yeah, maybe you would look at the charts 
you know, you don't you don't need this this sort of showpiece box to crank a few times. You you, you would need other more more specific measurements. And that's OK. So I do think if I had to choose, I think that the Antikythera mechanism was owned by one of the passengers on the ship or it was in the hold of the ship along with the other art pieces and stuff. That's also a clue, right? It's, it's not found by itself. It's found with a bunch of other high-end art pieces in the same spot. So I think these are being shipped somewhere for sale or for a rich person to show off. So no, I don't think it was a navigational aid. I think it was just a really cool way of seeing what's going to happen in the next week or two or three in the near future in terms of how the night sky is going to show itself. This would also be something that would be really great to have in a university setting or a library setting, you know, just like we have a globe, the same idea where you can kind of use it as a very visual device to tell you what's going on in this case, again, in terms of the night sky. Now, After all this, was it made by aliens who are much more intelligent than the silly Greeks of 100 BC? Of course not. Now, in terms of the quotes that always come with this, I think I've already talked about, you know, the world's first computer. It's like, well... If you think of a mechanical watch as a computer, then, yeah, then you could say it's the world's first computer. But again, I just I I think we just go into the weeds in terms of computer definition. It doesn't feel as computery to me. I think I think that orrery idea is much closer or a watch with a lot of complications. Another quote that you'll get a lot is mind bogglingly complex. Not really. You know, and I don't want to throw the ancient Greeks under the bus. This is a very, very cool, very, very specific and and carefully made mechanism. But is it mind bogglingly complex? No, it's not. And honestly, how you make one of these is how so much of the ancient world is made simply through careful measurement and patience. Right. You take the time to get the exact. That's where the math comes in that I talked about before. It's really a testament to how good they were at math and how careful their measurements were. So good for them. Right. But that's not mind bogglingly complex. It's just, hey, look at us. We were really smart and careful about what we did. A second quote I've seen more complex than a modern day Swiss watch. Now, if you ask me, I am more of a fan of Japanese watches than Swiss watches. Deal with it, world. But no, it is not more complex than a modern day Swiss watch. Okay, it doesn't have any springs. First and foremost, a modern day Swiss watch, you can wind it up and it keeps the time. Right. This doesn't keep any kind of time. You got to crank it each time to a specific moment that you want. Right. So it's it's utterly mechanical. There's no right. There's no batteries. There's there's no way it it does not keep its own time whatsoever. So it is not more complex than a modern day Swiss watch. It, It may have more complications than a modern day Swiss watch. That's true. But actually, if you shove a Swiss watch full of complications, 
it can probably beat out the antikythera mechanism uh, sorry but it's it's true and then another one it's unbelievably advanced uh sort of now it it is i would say it's advanced along with so much of ancient greek technology and culture it's advanced what are you gonna do that's great but it's doable by the greeks of 100 bc absolutely and if you want to be really harsh on the greeks of 100 bc then you start to look close at the gears and you'd be like well the gears are cut i mean they're just regular old straight cut gears Uh, it's okay and and also over time this thing is going to go off after a while. You know, my point is it, it's, it's not going to be the finest tell of where Jupiter is if you're going to crank it through 10 years or something. It's going to start missing. And that, that's just because you can only get these bronze gears to be so precise. Right. And and again, I, I'm not trying to throw the ancient Greeks under the bus. This is I love the Antikythera mechanism. But it is absolutely of the time. So it sort of doubles down and shows you that, yes, this is an artifact of the time. It is not a hoax and it is not made by aliens. Right. This is made by Greeks of the time. So. You know, in the end with this, why has there been so much kind of did aliens make it? Is it a hoax or whatever? It's really the unique factor, I think, that comes in. And it's we have to think back to that it's from a shipwreck and it's because you don't have any others. You have this one by itself. And it really tells you how important shipwreck archaeology is ultimately, because you're, you're seeing that moment in time where this ship sank and people died in that shipwreck, too. You know, they found human remains, too. So this was a very terrorizing, scary moment for that crew as their ship sank, you know, 2,100 years ago. Leaving for us this unique object that wouldn't have been found any other way. It reminds me of things that may be found in caves as well, like certain cave rock art that just because of the nature of the beast, because preservation is so good, you have this chance to find this thing that you couldn't find any other way. So in the end, let's enjoy the Antikythera mechanism for what it is, right? It brings us this amazing view into this one little moment in the past that we could not get any other way. This super cool, this unique artifact that was saved for us because of a storm 2,100 years ago. And with that, I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. 
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.